All right, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Bible class. Uh, If you would, go ahead and pull out your Bibles. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 today. And we had the benefit of of getting the uh, introduction from Bob last week for this book that we're going to be making our way through over this autumn and winter. And, uh, and we'll be starting in our text today. So my plan is we'll get right into the text, we'll give a prayer, and then I want to give a small introduction myself in order to kind of uh, set the stage not only for these first five verses, but also how they then set the stage for the rest of the book. And hopefully it will help guide us as we go on through the book itself. So Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you now and we thank you that you have given us this opportunity to read through your word, to consider it carefully, and we ask, Lord, that you would be with our hearts and our minds as we do so. May they be tuned to you and to the promptings of your spirit, to the guidance of your spirit, and may we glean much from it, that it would change us and that it would help us to glorify you and to honor you just as you are due. We thank you so much for sending your son Jesus, and we thank you for what his, his uh, coming, his perfect life, and his atoning death means to us. And we know, Lord, that because of this great gospel that you have given, we can live anew with you. And we ask, Lord, that you would, um, that you would bless our time as we consider that this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, to, to start off with, I want to actually encourage you in the same way that Bob did last week. He mentioned um, trying to set aside a little time each week to read through the, bo- the book of Galatians in its entirety just in one sitting. should only take about 25, 30 minutes, and, uh, and really in the grand scheme of things, that's not a whole lot of time during the week. So I want to help encourage you to do that. Um, I want to encourage myself to. I got to do the same thing. But it will, I think, really help us as we go through this excellent book. And, um, and just acquaint us over and over and over again with what the true gospel is in, uh, in juxtaposition to the, uh, to the legalizing, um, Judaizing gospel, which actually still lives today. Now we know hermeneutically, so when we look at the scriptures, we know that we need to take each sentence and each verse and each passage which we look at um, within its greater context, right? We look first at the immediate context. We look second at, uh, at the context within the chapter, within the book itself, and then within the greater context of the canon of Scripture. So all the rest of the 65 books of the Bible need to be taken into account. And that's how we, we really need to read the book. But one of the great things about some of these books is just we can also look, too, at the way it has divided history, at the way it has has uh, um, been a dividing point for the church, and it's really defined and set aside the way that the church has actually been built up. And in fact, I think Galatians can really be viewed this way. 
Um, it, it basically marks the planting and rooting and cultivating point of doctrinal divergence from Judaism, which accompanies and kind of expands upon uh, the historical event which was found in the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. And Bob mentioned that last week. That's a, a huge turning point in the early church is the council that met at Jerusalem in Acts 15. And it's mentioned here in Galatians 2 as we get into chapter 2. But what this also does, what Galatians does, is it puts down in writing that doctrinal divergence. That, uh, that point at which Jesus divides the waters, so to speak. And we see Judaism going in one direction and Christianity going in the other. And this is very, very important. So what we get in Galatians is an extremely important thing for us to understand. It's muy importante. We've got to pay attention to this. Now, sure, we can say that all of the books of the Bible are important, right? It's important to commit Proverbs to memory. It's important to read the Psalms and, and um, allow them to express some of the innermost thoughts of our heart. It's important to read the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and glean from them the, the true historicity and, and um, literal nature that they actually have in setting the baseline for what we believe as Christians. But when we talk about the doctrines which we hold dear in our church, in the church, in Christ's church, then we have to praise God for the expression of God's great and sovereign monergistic work in the salvation. Monergistic, his work, it's his work, not ours, in the salvation of his people as it's expressed in Galatians. Because the book is, is Paul's first written shot across the bow of those who would make the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ plus something else. And that's so important. I got to say it again because this is really key. This is Paul's first shot across the bow of those who would take the gospel of Jesus Christ and make it into the gospel of Jesus Christ plus something else. And we see that just all over our culture. You talk to a Mormon, you talk to a Jehovah's Witness, you talk to um, really anybody from any of the churches downtown or wherever you live, and you'll end up finding more than likely that they have added to the scriptures. And that's one of the reasons why we want to remain so, um, so embedded in the Bible. That's why we're Cornerstone Bible Church, right? So that we stay in the Bible and we stay acquainted with what the Bible actually says so that we see when things are added and when they are taken away and when they are um, removed or twisted or, or turned. Therefore, as we walk through Galatians, verse by verse, over the next several months, it's imperative that we keep the greater context of the book in mind, because simple phrases and word choices by Paul help to emphasize his purpose. Our passage today, even though it's just the introduction to the book, is a perfect example of this. And I want to place stress and weight and importance on it now, Paul wrote the epistle to the Galatians as a way of buttressing, of reinforcing the doctrine of justification by faith amidst churches which had abandoned it. They knew it at one time, but they abandoned it. And they did it in favor of being subject to box-checking and legalizing of the Judaizers. And they should have known better. And one of my biggest concerns within the church today Within, from Christians whom I know and love, is that there always seems to be this latent desire within each and every one of us 
in our longing for reassurance and comfort regarding our salvation to turn to something visible in an earthly sense, something which can be done or an act which can be performed into the source of our strength rather than Jesus Christ himself. Instead of Christ or along with Christ, we add things in there. And to illustrate my concern and to tie it to our text in a moment, later in Galatians, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 24, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. And so there you see right there the the thrust, the main thrust of Galatians. And that justified by faith clause is key. But when we combine it with what we learn from Romans chapter 10, verse 4, a link which Luther actually wrote about in his commentary on Galatians, by the way, we see that this tutoring which leads us to Christ also shows us that Christ is the end of the law. Romans 10, 4 says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, for righteousness, and that's key right there, to everyone who believes. No, this does not mean that we throw out the law. Absolutely not. In fact, Jesus himself said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until earth and heaven have passed away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. That's Matthew 5, 17 and 18. And there's a big difference between abolishing something and fulfilling something, isn't there? A big difference. But in the fulfillment of the law, we also know that Christ said on the cross that it's finished. It's finished. To tell us die, it is finished. What, what could Christ have meant except that the law's demands and curses have been fulfilled? So go ahead and turn real quick to Colossians chapter 2. Because I want to set the table here for, for our verses today and for the greater context of Galatians by looking at this very thing. How does the law fit in? How does Christ fit in with the law? How does Christ actually fulfill the law? Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. It says that when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive. Now, uncircumcision, isn't that interesting? We're already getting to a circumcision, which is something that's pretty big here in Galatians. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. What could he mean here, except that this debt which has been canceled out, consisting of decrees against us, hostile to us, what could he mean other than the law which is accusing us? Because that's what the law is always doing. It's pointing a finger at us, telling us how we failed. <laughs> On the way here, I did a California stop at one of the stop signs. It's messed up. Law is pointing a finger at me. But the law, you'll notice, couldn't keep me from doing that, could it? It couldn't give me the strength to actually stop. <laughs> no, that's how we fail all the time. We're constantly failing. And the law is there to point the finger in our face and, and point out the way that we've failed. But guess what Jesus has done? This decree against us that is hostile to us, he's nailed it to the cross. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 through 18. 
Because this, uh, this sheds even more light on it. Hebrews 10, verses 10 through 18. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And that's a key, a key phrase for what we're talking about in Galatians. Offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Sat down. He must have been finished, right? Sat down at the right hand of God. Waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. So right there in that one passage we see, once for all, one sacrifice for all time. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more, for there is no longer any offering for sin. And now we start to get a fuller picture of just where the law fits into things now. Yes, it's still around. Yes, it's still accusing us. It still has some, uh, some operation in our lives. And we'll get into three of those ways here in a moment. But... But, even though it's still known and living and active in its judgment of all men, Christ, our perfect sacrifice, has fulfilled it in our stead. It is never Christ's perfect life and sacrifice plus circumcision. It is never Christ's perfect life and sacrifice plus the works of the law. It is never Christ's perfect life and sacrifice plus the various man-made gospels. It is Christ alone. Christ alone, solus Christus. And that is where we have to start when we get into the true gospel of Jesus Christ as Paul tells it here in Galatians. So now, let's actually begin our passage. Chapter 1, verse 1. This is Galatians, chapter 1, verse 1. And we're going to actually get into what is driving Paul. But what we end up seeing through this is that he never takes his eyes off of his mission. He never takes his eyes off of the theme of the epistle. He starts off, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So Paul, he identifies him right up front, himself right up front, which is, you know, that's convention for the time. It makes a whole lot more sense than putting it at the end, doesn't it? Then people who get your letter, they, they pull forward, who is this from? And then they read the postscript you put on there and mess up the whole thing, right? <laughs> no, he says it from the beginning. Paul, he identifies himself. He does this in each and every one of the epistles that we have, uh, unless he wrote Hebrews, and then that throws it all off. That's the exception to the rule, I guess. Um, but Paul, and then he combines it with an apostle. An apostle. And he does this in many of his, uh, in his, of his books, he identifies himself as an apostle right away. Sometimes he combines it with the word doulos, meaning slave or bondservant or something like that. Um, but he doesn't hear. And I think that right from the word go, we're getting a good example of what he's doing. He's setting the table by showing, okay, no, 
I'm going to express the strength of my authority and where I got this so that my gospel, the gospel that I deliver is, is taken properly, right? So he's an apostle. He doesn't mention being a doulos here. He's a sent one, an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And there were three basic qualifications which are needed for, uh, for being an apostle. And I'm going to give you some verse references. If you want to write them down or something, uh, feel free and check them out later. But, uh, and then if you don't get them too, just come and see me afterward. But these three basic qualifications were first that they were chosen directly by Jesus. You can find this in Mark 3.14, Luke 6.13, Acts 1, verse 2 and 24, and then also right here in Galatians 1.1. Second, that they were able to perform signs and wonders and mighty works, as it says in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12. But you can see this also in Matthew 10, verses 1 through 1 and 2, Acts 1, verses 5 through 8, Acts 2.43, Acts 4.33, Acts 5.12, and Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4. And then finally, that they were eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. That's the third thing, the third qualification for being an apostle. Acts 1, verses 21 through 25, that's mentioned actually when they're replacing Judas with Matthias. Um, in Acts 10, verses 39 through 41. And then twice in 1 Corinthians, of all places. 1 Corinthians 9, 1 and 15, 7 and 8. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 8, Paul explicitly states that he was the last person to have met this third qualification of being an eyewitness of the risen Christ. Um, indicating that really there have been no genuine apostles since Paul. He says there, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. And I think that's key too, because he's establishing that no, it ends with me, guys. Even if, if these Judaizing teachers were to claim to be apostles, uh, it's not true. I was last. I was last. But then what we get after Paul, an apostle, is we get this parenthetical statement. And this is very different from all the other ways that he introduces his, his epistles. He says, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. That's really different. If we look at the other of at his 13 epistles, okay, in four of them he doesn't mention being an apostle, and so he doesn't expand upon it. That's uh, Philippians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. And in each one of those cases, he's kind of got a pretty good relationship with the, with the church, and he's not necessarily trying to uh, correct much other than, you know, in Thessalonians, hey, don't worry about it. These people have died. They'll be raised again. Um, so he's, he doesn't have a, an, a reason to give his apostleship and to basically flex that muscle, right? So that's, that takes care of four of the 13 epistles. In the three pastorals, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, it's very personal the way that he actually talks about himself as an apostle, something that probably he talked about with Timothy and Titus quite a bit, just having that relationship that he had with them. And so that takes care of another three. So now we've got seven of the 13 taken care of. And then we're looking at Galatians, so that's eight of 13. Well, what about those other five? Well, when we look at those other five, we see a clear um, pattern emerge. In Romans, he says that he was called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. In 1 Corinthians, he said, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. In 2 Corinthians, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. 
in Ephesians, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And in Colossians, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. You kind of see the pattern that emerges, right? It's pretty clear that what he normally puts with the word apostle is that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And that's it. But no, here in Galatians, we get something different. We get something very different, in fact. A parenthetical statement in which he highlights some very key pieces of information that need to be known as he's about to go into lambasting them for leaving what he had actually taught them, right? He says, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So he brings up that he's not an apostle according to men or men's authority, and he brings up the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think those are two key things. So why does he feel compelled to, to say this? Well, first of all, because his message is divine. It has a divine origin. Second, because his role had been assigned to him. He didn't actually go out and seek it. As a matter of fact, he was going to do the opposite on the road to Damascus. And then God intervened in his sovereign power, right? So he's pointing that out. No, this is according to God. This is according to Jesus who appeared to me on the road to Damascus and completely turned my life upside down. <laughs> and yet these Judaizing teachers are coming in and they're, they're trying to force their way in, right? Very different from Paul. Also, because his authority is real, it's derived only from Christ. Another reason, because those who came and attacked the gospel did so by undermining Paul's authority. Uh, Bob brought, brought this up last time. It, so goes Paul, so goes the gospel. And so they went, they went in and they undermined his authority. They undermined him. They called him names and, <laughs> and made him out to be a liar, making up things, leaving things out. Man, so he's got to defend himself. And in fact, we see that this was not the, the only time where he did that. He alluded to this in 1 Corinthians 9, 2, and in 2 Corinthians eleven five 5 as well. Just like Bob said last week, it seemed like everywhere Paul went, behind him were a few Judaizing teachers who were ready to come in and take advantage of him planting a church so that they could twist the gospel of Christ. So he's attacking that. He is addressing that issue. Another reason that he brings this up, that it's not from men, and he brings up the resurrection of Christ, is because those who attacked the true gospel in him could not claim either apostleship or direct divine receipt of their gospel themselves, could they? No. And in fact, related to that, and I think this is really something key to note, both John the Baptist and Jesus had to also field questions about their authority. Uh, in John one twenty five and in Mark eleven twenty seven through thirty three, and in both cases the proof or validity which they gave that it came from God was in its working by the Holy Spirit. And in fact, Paul is claiming that same success. He's saying this came from God. My gospel came from God, and its success is due to the Spirit. And he's pointing that out, I believe, right here. And if the Judaizers were to deny that it automatically puts them in the same camp as those who rejected John and killed Jesus. And so we see Paul playing his own gambit here. This is, uh, this is Paul playing chess while they're playing checkers. And he's maneuvering them into his, uh, 
uh, you know, his, well, I guess checkmate. I don't know how chess works. Yeah, but he's, he's, he's maneuvering them into position so that he can show the truth of his gospel. And then, lest we for, kind of gloss over it, that who raised him from the dead clause there is also not to be glossed over. The resurrection is a key element in the defeat of the Judaizers' teaching. Because death, it's the end of anything that you're going to do, right? And Christ was raised from the dead, though. And so Christ says that it's the end, or that it's not the end, that it's actually the beginning. Whereas these Judaizing teachers, they're talking about things of earthly value. After all, can circumcision prevent death? Can the sacrifice of bulls and goats give new life? Can keeping feast days raise people from the dead? Absolutely not. And so, the implication for this passage, for Galatians, and then also for the greater context of Galatians, is that the power which raised Jesus from the dead, God, is also the same power which has imparted Paul's authority as an apostle and has empowered the gospel which he proclaimed. So that's what that parenthetical statement actually accomplishes. It's quite a bit, right? It, lays the, it sets the table for, for what's coming afterward in Galatians, especially in verses 6 through 9 when he finally opens up the guns and gives them a full broadside. We'll get into that next week. That'll be fun, right? All right, so the next uh, little clause in there is that he, he talks about the brethren who are with him and all the brethren who are with me. That's, uh, that's the beginning of verse 2. Paul doesn't mention his companions by name here as he does in other introductions. In fact, in 1 and 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, and 1 and 2 Thessalonians, so several different epistles, he actually names names of those who are partners in the gospel. He doesn't do that here. And it kind of begs the question, why? Well, it's his authority that's being attacked. Um, the gospel that which he delivered is divine, right? Um, and as much, in as much as others are joining with him and proclaiming it, they're certainly partners. But if they were to diverge from what he said at all, they're, they're the ones who are erring. So he's, he's drawing a line between himself and some of those, those other, um, others who are working with him. And that's not to, to throw them under the bus or anything, but rather... In this case, he's not naming them so that he doesn't have to defend them. He's defending his gospel, the gospel which was given to him directly by Jesus Christ. But he also still mentions that he has brethren with him. Why? Because he wants to make sure that the Galatian churches know he's not alone in this. You know, it's not Paul who's gone rogue. It's they who have gone rogue because they, have, they don't have a gospel from Christ. And so he still mentions that he has brothers with him. And then the second part of, the, of verse 2, to the churches of Galatia. And Bob covered this pretty well last week, you know, where the, where the churches of Galatia were, how he had planted many of these churches on his first missionary journey. He had the excellent map up there, and we saw kind of what an excellent, um, an excellent location that was. It was a major Roman road that went through there, and he planted churches all along it. And probably what this was was a circular letter that he was given, or that he had given to the churches in Galatia after the Judaizing teachers had come through. 
But what we also see is that this language is rather impersonal and bland, isn't it? To the churches of Galatia. And he kind of leaves it at that. Now granted, he gets to grace and peace to you in a second. But to the churches of Galatia. And it kind of got me thinking, I wonder what the other introductions look like. I just flipped over to Ephesians and just checked that one. But if you look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, it says, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Wow, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Man, that sounds a little bit nicer, doesn't it? Yeah, the saints. He calls them saints. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. Now, granted, he, like I said, he, this is a circular letter, and so it's a little less personal, and then it's going to several different churches, but as opposed to Ephesians, which went to just one. But he still calls them saints. And he says, you know, you're, you're faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, granted, probably that also cuts out some of the others who maybe weren't faithful. But he's making a point there of their faithfulness, of their sainthood. And yet here in Galatians, to the churches of Galatia. That's all we get. And you kind of get the impression that, uh, yeah, the powder has been put into the cannon. The cannonball is seeded. And what we're going to see in a second is he's going to light the fuse so that he can give the full broadside um, in verses 6 through 9. To the churches of Galatia. But he waits for a second before he lights that fuse. And he gives a wonderful thing, a wonderful statement, which is very Pauline. Grace to you and peace. That's the beginning of verse 3. Grace to you and peace. This is really a very normal greeting, which he uses also in Romans chapter 1, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 3, 2 Corinthians 1, 2, Ephesians 1, 2, Philippians 1, 2, and Philemon 3. So that's used a lot. And as a matter of fact, uh, we, we hear it all the time, grace to you, and, you know, when we turn on the radio, hopefully. You've got to tune to the right place, right? Grace to you and peace. But knowing how early he wrote Galatians, he may actually be setting the stage for the future usage of grace and peace. And so then it takes on a little bit greater significance, if that's possible. Especially in juxtaposition to the legalizing teachers and what they were actually teaching. Because grace cannot be bought by works. Or ceremony or attitude. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Romans eleven six, right? And peace cannot be gained through keeping the law because the law is not intended to give peace. Instead, the law points the finger at us, right? It points the finger because we've all failed and we failed in this way and we failed in this way and we failed in that way and we failed in that way and this way and that. It shows us all the ways that we've failed. The law has three uses, according to theologians. There's a political use of the law to restrain sin and promote righteousness. We see that especially borne out in the theocratic kingdom of Israel, right? The political, to restrain sin and promote righteousness. There's the pedagogical, which is to convict men of sin. That's that pointing of the fingers, right? It convicts us of our sin. And then there's the didactic, or teaching us how to live in a way that pleases God. So these three ways that the law is used to restrain sin and promote righteousness, to convict men of sin, and to teach us how to live in a way which pleases God. But you'll notice none of those give peace. None of them give peace. 
None of them are an avenue for grace, other than common grace, because if we followed them, we'd find a lot of wonderful things would come our way just through not messing up our lives. <laughs> right? But certainly not a salvific grace within that. Therefore, peace could never come through the law, but only through a gospel in which God's will reigns supreme. All right, getting on to the next section because I'm a little bit behind where I wanted to be. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. So grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. It's important to note here that God and Jesus working together, you know, shown in communion in their work, has been highlighted twice now in just our passage. The other time was up when Paul was describing the source of his authority. The Judaizing teaching leads inevitably to lack of focus on Christ. That's an interesting thing, right? So what we end up finding is, is God the Father and God the Son working in concert with one another twice in our passage. And yet, if you look at how the Judaizing teaching worked, what did it do? It automatically diverted your gaze from what Christ had done to instead the appeasement of God through your works and actions. Isn't that interesting? So it automatically adjusts the, the, the boresight that we have away from the Trinity and the unity within them. And yet what we find in Scripture, in fact, Bill talked about this several times. I don't remember if it was in the morning or in the evening last week. Maybe it was both. But God the Father, the true gospel, shows that God the Father elects, predestines, and providentially appoints that God the Son atones and vicariously lives righteously in our stead, and that God the Spirit regenerates dead hearts and leads the Christian through a life of sanctification. And so we see how they are all working in unity and concert with one another for the true gospel. And yet, what does the Judaizing teaching do? It says, well, you've got to do this, and then you've got to do this, and then you've got to do this, and then you've got to live this way in order for God to withhold his wrath from you. Now granted, we need to keep the law, we need to keep the, the, the moral law that is uh, still binding upon us. <laughs> no idolatry, no making of graven images, <laughs> no bearing false witness, no murder, no covetousness. No, we still keep those, right? We still keep those. But does it bring salvation? No. No. Because if every time we try, the law points out how we fail. Yeah. And so why is that important that it's God the Father and Jesus the Son working together in concert? Well, so that he might rescue us. This is, once again, verse uh, 4. So that he might rescue us from this present evil age. I love that word, rescue. What a wonderful idea that he would rescue us. The Greek is exireo, uh, which means not just to deliver from, but to rescue from the power of. Do you see the slight difference? Not just to deliver from, but to rescue from the power of. And that's the gospel in there. Because certainly, okay, in Paul's time and situation, yes, he was battling the Judaizing teaching, and the power of God to defeat the power of the age is found in Christ's self-sacrifice. And we see that very clearly. As one commentator put it for this verse, he says, quote, Thus, defeat of the power of the age to incite and exacerbate human sinfulness is included in humanity's rescue in Christ's self-sacrifice. 
Let me say that again. Defeat of the power of the age to incite and exacerbate human sinfulness is included in humanity's rescue in Christ's self-sacrifice. God's power in Christ is available to the believer not only to rescue from eternal death, but also to energize an obedient life as a dependent disciple of Jesus, unquote. That is awesome. Could the law do that? No. 1,500 years of Jewish history showed that the law could not do that. No, it couldn't prevent idolatry. It couldn't prevent syncretism. It couldn't prevent... And I just lost my notes. It couldn't prevent anything. It couldn't prevent them from gallivanting off with whatever God was there, lowercase g. No. It couldn't do any of it. That's what the law is a failure in. And it's got to be pointed out here. And in fact, what also has to be pointed out is that we're living in the same present evil age, aren't we? And so the same gospel is applicable to us. And in fact, the same wonderful news is applicable to us in that he doesn't just rescue us, deliver us from evil, but he also helps us in making sure that we don't do it as often. (laughs) Romans 7, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Or as it's seen in Jude, verse 24, I love that benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Oh, he is able to keep me from stumbling and to energize an obedient life. But also to to keep us from distraction. Excuse me, I'm sorry about that. And to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. So in other words, he is helping us in, in staying true to what the gospel says. And he rescues us not only from death, but also energizes an obedient life. What a wonderful thing. That word stumbling there, by the way, in Jude 24, that's the only place where it's used. And guess what it means? Normally it means like unerring or to make infallible. But I love this too. It means less apt to stumble. And don't we all want to be that? Less apt to stumble. Or more um, apt to greater precision. That kind of brings to mind a hind's feet on high places, you know? Ever see a deer climbing a mountain? How sure-footed they are? That's what, how God makes us. Amidst all of the sin of this present evil age, He does it. He can keep us from stumbling. Okay. Getting really close to the end here. According to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. We see that at the end there in verse 4 and 5. According to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. You know, the question which Paul never seems to leave begging in his, uh, in his epistles is why would God do all this for us? He answers it so often, doesn't he? He gets into these... Uh, these um, Onto his soapbox about the wonderful grace of God, the mercy that he shows through Jesus Christ. And then he never leaves us wondering why he would do it. And just in the same way that he always does, he points out because it's, to the, it's in the will of God and it's to his glory. That's what we see here. His will cannot be thwarted. Isn't that wonderful news? 
because his plan actually includes us. What a blessing. That is in his will and it's to his glory that we win. What a wonderful thing. So this grace that it comes to us, this peace which he's talking about from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, because he gave himself for our sins and rescued us, that's all within the will of God. Praise God, because his will cannot be thwarted. And so I think that's what leads then to Paul ending this section almost in doxology, right? And he closes it out with a wonderful amen. So let it be, Lord. So let it be. And I'll kind of leave you with this. Sometimes I, I kind of believe that we fear rhapsodizing eloquence, you know, using our best words to glorify God and to uh, try to explain just what wonderful works He has done on our behalf. And I kind of understand that. It doesn't really fit with our culture very much, right? Um, to use certain words just seems over the top. And yet Paul doesn't shy away from it. And I think that there's a point where it's horribly crass and kind of despicably vulgar, wickedly pagan, to not break out into praise and adoration when we consider what we are, when we are reminded about what God has done for us. Instead, as I said at the outset of this lesson, I think that we tend to wander into rites and ceremony and routine in order to reassure our anxious souls of their salvation. And so we stop from just being bursting out in praise and adoration like we ought to, and as Paul does so often. And so I pray, I pray that he will lead us to more doxology in our attitudes, and that both our works and our words would be an amen to God the Father for the work of God the Son, and that the amen would be uttered by the power and sanctification of God the Spirit. Amen? Let's go ahead and pray real quick, and then we'll break up into our, our discussion groups. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this wonderful, wonderful passage. Even though it just seems like a simple introduction, Lord, it gives us so much, so much encouragement to know that your grace and your peace envelop us and that you have rescued us from this present evil age. And we ask, Lord, that you would do that every day that you would give us the strength to stand against the wiles of the, of the devil and of the um, just darkness of the culture, Lord, and instead that we would be salt and light in this dark place while we're here. And indeed, Lord, that you would come soon, that you would take us to be with you because we long to see you face to face. We long to be transformed from the sinful fleshly body to the one that you have uh, promised us a new body, Lord, perfect in every way, and that can honor and please you in the way that you intended. We thank you so much, Lord, for your work on our behalf, your will which cannot be thwarted, and shown by Jesus Christ, your Son, who died in our place, who lived a perfect life, for your Spirit which has quickened us to life, and for the sanctification that you give through him. And we thank you so much, Lord, that we can approach you in prayer. And we pray that you would be with us in our discussion now. In Jesus' name, amen.